Hello and welcome back to Dollars and Dragons. We have with us today Chelsea Dot Steverson. If you'd like to introduce yourself to the audience here. Hey everybody, uh, you might know me best as Little Red Dot online. Um, and if you don't, you can go find me where Little Red Dots are found. Um, most of my friends call me Dot, uh, and I am a producer in the tabletop RPG scene. I work full time for Cobalt Press as their content producer, and I have a slew of projects uh, in and around the sides that I produce that usually all have to do with gaming and storytelling. Fantastic. Um, let's forget all of that until later in the podcast. I need to know more about where Dot was cultivated. Like what garden was Dot from? Let's hear Dot's origin story. It's funny you actually say that because I grew up in a really small farming community, like really I, small Georgia farming community. No kidding? Like you did, oh. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know if you did that this? on purpose. I have no idea. <laughs> you seem like a farmer, bitch. I don't know. Yeah, like, <laughs> um, I grew up, uh, I grew up in a really small agricultural community in the Southeast section of Georgia, right where the Okefenokee swamp kind of comes out of Florida and pours into Georgia. So I'm also a swamp, a swamp bitch, if you would, um, as well. <laughs> and, um, I'm serious for real. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Can I, I'm going to call so, you that from now on. Yeah, so I, I actually, it's funny, I tell people I have an affinity towards swamp terrain as like one of my favorite or my tabletop games. I love swamp settings. So anyways, I, I grew up in this tiny little town and um, I tell people that arts were super integral for me because we didn't have them uh, where I grew up. Like they just weren't there. I mean, I, I was, our county was the only county without a, a, a library. When I was a kid, uh, right before my seventh birthday, I was diagnosed with Burkitt's lymphoma which is a type of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, um, in layman's terms, cancer. And so I went through all of the process and treatment, but I came from a small town. So the closest place for me to get the treatment I needed was Jacksonville. And the Jacksonville Children's Hospital had a library that had comic books and things I had never seen before. Uh, And it was kind of this awakening of like, look at all this nerdy stuff. Unfortunately, when I got back to Blackshear, of course, I had lost all my hair. I was seven years old going into like the second grade or whatever, and I was heavily bullied. And it was our music teacher, Mr. Jackson. I remember him, Mr. Jackson, David Jackson, who asked me to join the chorus. And I did. And after that, it was kind of like the arts were a no brainer. So if I could do it, I did. Band, drama. Um, I even had a few years of cheerleading in what way that uh, qualifies as a, you know, art activity. But I did it. Uh, I did everything that I could, everything I could I kind of get my hands on within the radius of this like one red light town. So I knew when I turned 18, I, I had to get out of this kind of like one red light town. And um, the only way to do that was to go to college, everybody. Um, and so I sorted my way and I was going to go be an engineer. Um, in fact, I wanted to design car engines, sustainable car engines. I accepted to a tech school and then my senior year participated in my first Shakespeare show. And show I was, was like, <laughs> Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh... And I was like, I have to do theater. I have to be a performer. I have to tell stories. So I found a middle ground to convince my father to let me go to art school, which was to design video games. Savannah College of Art and Design had a video game track, which was kind of not as popular <laughs> as it is now, uh, but it was better than me saying I was going to go get a theater degree. So um, poor little, you know, lower class family from Podunk, Georgia was like, if you want to go to art school, you have to figure out a way to pay for it. Uh, so I got as many scholarships as I could. I participated in past my senior year to earn money through the Georgia pageantry system. Uh, so there are winning photos of Dot out there in like pageant dresses with flowers and shit. Uh, you, you do what you have to. Uh, 
When are you sending those to me? Like, uh, not those will probably and hopefully never resurface. But you do what you no, have to do yeah. to like get get where you want to be, right? And so it was the it was that was like this really turning point moment where it's like if you want to get out of here, do what you want to do. You best. So I, I got as much money as I could. The school gave me a scholarship, all this stuff. So off dot goes to art school, coming out of like Baptist Georgia. That four years was a great awakening for me. And of course, I did not stay in the video game track. Um, at the moment, I could change my major. <laughs> it went to theater, but art school really allowed me to kind of. Bring break free. I met new people from all over the world. I made things I never thought I would <laughs> ever be able to make. In fact, actually, this Winnie the Pooh on the shelf, which I know y'all can't see, but Friday can, is one of my very first freshman year projects from my 3D art class. I made that drunk Winnie the Pooh. So anyways, it, it, it like expanded me into, you know, and so my senior year of college might or might not have been under the influence of uh, various kinds and um, was at a party. And I get the question a lot. How did how did you get called Little Red Dot? Like, where does that come from? My friend had one of those maps that you find in a science room. You know, the ones of the universe, the Milky Way galaxy. And it says uh -huh. you are here. It has yeah. the little red dot. So I had uh -huh. this like full on existential crisis in the middle of um, a psychedelic trip and was awaken to this idea of like I'm both so big and so small what's so impactful about that the expanse of how small you realize you are what I came out realizing is like I'm still a part of that even in like the smallest capacity i'm still a part of something giant so what do i do with that that's some existential like so it was like, a, like it was a massive existential crisis but in, yeah. a, in a really kind of beautiful way and so at that moment like from an artistic standpoint from a creative standpoint from a from a being a human standpoint it's like i have to figure out what it means to be a dot in this universe i we've never talked about this holy shit yeah. <laughs> This is how this came about. And so after my senior year of undergrad, I kind of moved forward with this idea. And I have done, I have created and made a lot of things from web series to film shows. I participated in theater for years of my life. You know, I, I've, I've made uh, public art. I've made uh, sculptures and uh, special placement art at like burns and festivals. I've, I've spent my life creating. And all of it always came back to theater. It was kind of a point somewhere in my 20s where I was just significantly unfulfilled. I couldn't quite figure out why. So after some soul searching, I decided to go to... I was friends with a lot of artists and a lot of creatives and people, and I was on one side of the line of watching these creatives not be able to fund themselves, right? We had all gone to art school. We had we had been taught how to make our art, and nobody had taught us how to sell it. And I was so frustrated. And I was like, where, why, why is this so, this can't be this hard. And of course, like every artist, I had my day which was in retail. And I was, I was very successful in retail management on a rather large scale for a company out of Chicago, actually, called Paper Source for a long, long time. I opened up some stores here in Atlanta, and I helped manage them. And um, things were good, but I was, again, unfulfilled. And so I was having this, again, existential crisis that's like, I have all this business knowledge, but I have no understanding of how to apply it to the thing I love the most. So I went back to grad school, and I got my master's degree in about a year and a half, and I focused on arts business. So that covers the gamut of, like, nonprofits to radio stations to museums and um, fine antique and art sales. Uh, I kind of ran the gamut and I spent this like year and a half. I worked at a museum, in fact, as a first person interpreter on a Civil War farm. Uh, that was a whole other <laughs> that's a whole other story for another day. Oh, but uh, yeah, uh, that was what I did to get myself through grad school for a job. But 
I I learned a lot. And so then I spent the next like years working in nonprofit, helping artists build their businesses, um, really looking, taking a look at the rise of crowdfunding as a, a source of, of major income for artists. And I worked for nonprofits that made that structure of business and uh, sustainability a part of their business model. So if that meant teaching classes, finding funding, getting health insurance for artists on low income, and I did it for years. And then when I came out the other side, I was like, oh, I haven't made anything in five years. I've spent all my energy learning and giving it in all the right places, but I'm still unfulfilled. How old were you at this point? Um, This would have been about, I was about 26. Okay. Oh, no. And now, oh, no, I'm so sorry. I was about 27 or 28. Yeah. So I was, I was closing in on that 30 gap, you know, and I'm like, what am I doing? Oh, the crisis. Oh, no, 30. I'm so old. Right, exactly. And so it was kind of setting in. I was like, what do I do? What do I do? I've got all this education. I've got all of this life experience, right? I come from nothing and I've seen something and like I had all of these things and I couldn't quite figure it out. And then I had a friend from my hometown. He's a fantastic writer for Tabletop and he's a good friend. Uh, We were in band together in high school and drama and he was in that production of Midsummer Night's Dream. Nice. Uh, his name is Rimfar, Rimley Far. Uh, you can go out there and search him probably on the DM skill. But uh, he was like, hey, I've got a friend who runs a Twitch channel. Now, Twitch at this time was kind of new. And actually, I had a Twitch channel, which is a whole other story. But it was actually a cosplay channel. That's how my channel oh. got started, was cosplay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was like, I've got this friend who's got a Twitch channel. You've got a camera and like a mic set up now and stuff. Like, we play we play Dungeons and Dragons. Now, I was introduced to Dun- Dungeons and Dragons in undergrad. So 3.5 was where I got started. And then I've kind of mm-hmm. dabbled in and out of 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 various editions uh, up until this point. Mm-hmm. I was like, that sounds kind of fun. I, I've been trying to like gather my friends in the great scheduling crisis of, you know, tabletop. And they were like, come play. He was like, just come play. It's just a dropping game. Just bring a character. And I was like, oh my God, this is the dopest thing ever. And I did it once. And I was like, I was, uh, I remember I got done. And this is when Snapchat had just become like a huge thing. And I remember oh Snapchatting God. Rim. I was Snapchatting oh Rim. And I was like, Rim, this is the greatest thing I've ever done. Can I come back next week? And it was the first time in this point of, of all the many crises that I I've had in my life where I was like this I don't feel like I'm in crisis anymore oh. and I was like I know how to do this and so I started asking around I was like show me the program that you use right but I have come out of film and tv and radio and uh audio dramas I did radio audio dramas for a while that's actually I worked with a company that does original audio drama plays like two one two there it is even uh so I was working with them here in Atlanta, and I, I I did my grad thesis with them. So I've worked in production in a variety of ways. I've managed film sets. I've been an actor on film sets. I've done crappy commercials and industrials for, like, training videos. Like, I have seen and done it all. And so by this point, I felt really super-duper fulfilled. I was like, wow. I got to play a character. I got to tell a story. I got to meet new people. I all did it from the comfort of my pajamas from the waist down. Like, holy crap, holy. Like, it was like this whole new thing thing and at that point where I was like struggling in theater and we can talk about my struggle with theater which is like a whole other thing it's like an art form in particular but I knew that this was kind of something I wanted to be involved in and so I just started hustling to do it as much as I could and an unfortunate um I'll just be honest an unfortunate bully attack against me early in my presence online I shifted communities and it actually encouraged me to make my own community my own safe space where I could be with the people that want to be with me and me with them and so I launched a Discord and that Discord grew into a channel and then I started self-producing and then that snowball started rolling and um, those shows were very successful and I was paying people, which was like unheard of for tabletop at the time. Uh, yeah. 
It's like this perfect conglomeration of all the many things I love. Storytelling, met with, with good business, uh, with production, uh, with, with the, uh, the art uh, uh, of, of, uh, of, of the public-facing uh, production, which I love, right? The pizzazz of show business. Uh, all of it. Mm. Uh, and really, it was a random friend who asked me to play D&D online. And the capabilities that we now have with things like Twitch that really changed how I do what I do, why I do it, and what fulfills me. First of all... Um... Um, sorry, you're bullied. Uh, I love you. Uh, now you jump way back to the front of that story. Yeah, I appreciate <laughs> you. Thank you so much. You know, but I'm a firm believer that some things do make you stronger. And, you know, I have a therapist to deal with those problems and have and face that. And I was like, wow, what did I learn from this bullying? Well, I learned the way I want to treat other people. Yeah, I learned that I can endure a lot. And more importantly than their words, do not define me. Yeah. And um, I guess I'll just be vulnerable, like just on the podcast, because I told Dot I was going to try not to cry on this podcast, but we'll see. Um, so Dot for uh, was one of the first people that I worked with uh, in tabletop uh, show producer because approached Cobalt Press about doing Empire of the Ghouls campaign um, and a Thrones and Bones Nottingard. Uh, campaign and uh, that was right at the time that I had come out and I remember how Dot treated me when I had shared that I had come out and like I had told my dad at the time and my dad told me I was going to hell and like I remember even though you were like super busy and we were like doing a show and stuff and I had sent messages like I'm gonna be a little off today because of this thing that's happening I just remember like being in that position and like having in my previous life, of course, in the Marine Corps, you're a little more loving than anybody in the Marine Corps in my, you know, <laughs> in my past. But um, you had provided me just a place to be professionally respected in spite of who I was and uh, allowed me the space to be myself. And it really meant a lot to me then as it did with like my my mentor and um, the people that I had been working with at the time. I think that there are a lot of people out there who profess that they have a safe space or they say that they want <laughs> to, you know, do all these things, but genuinely don't have don't have it or they choose not to make things safe for other people. And I just wanted to recognize that you are most definitely one of those people that had a huge impact in my life and my trajectory and definitely one of the people that I suppose I want to say like secured my future in this direction. Because obviously when you're in a formative period in any career or anything like that, like it's really makes a huge difference when you can feel loved and you can feel like you trust the people that you're working with. And it's not like we were doing like a massive gig. It was not. It was, you know, it, it was what it was. It was big to me. It was big to the cast. Um, but it was just another gig to you. And you still treated everyone really respectfully and with a lot of patience. And officially, like, you know, in public, <laughs> I wanted, I just want to thank you for being who you are. And well, I really appreciate those kind words. Thank you. But remember, you brought me into something really beautiful. Look, if they, I, I know I know a lot about change as I just spilled to all of you in like, what, three, five minutes or whatever. Um, and in all of those various points of change, I would not have been able to make them without the certain people in my life who took that moment to like lift you up. And honestly, yeah. it's rather serendipitous because when you came to me with the Empires of the Ghoul idea, we were in a transition phase for the Twitch. Um, if we if we want to talk about business, right, in marketing, we do what we Let's, call A and B yes, testing. Yes, we a, do a and want, B testing. That's, 
That's what we do in this podcast, okay, yes. So so we talk about A and B testing. For, you, for those of you that don't know, marketing is based entirely on numbers. What works to sell you the thing? Now, that thing could be an idea. That thing could be a brand. It could be a product. It could be um, a show, right? Um, it could be a variety of things. But whatever the, 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 the thing is that you're trying to get people to notice. So we do what we call A and B testing, where we try something and see if it works. And then we try something different and see, does it work better? Does it work worse? Uh, did we see any change whatsoever? And this gives, as much as you probably hate to hear that term, to us so that we can make smarter and, and more financially sound decisions when we're trying to get you information, however and whatever that looks like. So with the Twitch channel, when I came on, I did some A and B testing. I did some A, B, and C testing, actually. Um, and I was in the B phase of my testing, which was to shift what was to try to prove a point, actually. I was trying to get data to prove a point. And that point was which channels that the majority of us believe that if we have big name people on a show, it's going to drive numbers. Or a channel of Cobalt Press's size, that is. And I'm not talking about our anomaly, which we all know is critical role. You cannot compare yourself to the anomaly. Uh, that will not actually serve you any purpose in the business world. You have to compare yourself to your actual competitors. So if we look, I, look, I, I identify those competitors. I identify those channels in which we were similar in size and capacity. I've done this. I, I've paid big name people to be here. I dropped the big bucks and I didn't get what I was looking for. So now let's try it another way. And so I was in this point of trying to put together a show that actually ca had had cast members who were not blue check marks on Twitter. That these were people that were in the industry, in the business, interested in actual plays and table the tabletop scene, if you would, and simply needed a place to do something. And about the time I had made that decision and was beginning to source ideas, you came to me with Empire of the Ghouls. And you were like, hey, I got this group of friends. We've already got all the stuff we need for it. All we need is somebody to open their doors to us. And I was like, that is all you need? I can give you that. I was like, better yet, I can pay you. <laughs> and I can be a player if you want. And I can help produce it. Like, that that was a very serendipitous moment because I was in this point of wanting to test it. And, and, and your group fit my test model perfect. And I was excited to work with you because we had, we had a budding new friendship. And again, if some people in life had not taken a chance on me, I would not be where I am. I said, fuck it, let's take a chance. What's the worst that happens? We get to play Empire of the Ghouls and it's forever archived on our YouTube channel. Oops, big mistake. You know, like with a super diverse, super awesome, super young, super beautiful cast. Uh, oops, I've made a mistake now. And it's like, you know, it was a test run. And with tests, you have to recognize that it may fail. And even in that failure, oh gosh, what is that? Love that idea at Edison. I did not fail 2,000 times on designing a light bulb. I learned 2,000 ways not to design a light bulb. Yeah. So failure I, is just is just how we're not supposed to do it. I want. Oh, I I don't know if I ever shared this with you. Also, but like I remember like us doing the cosplay for like the first half until we were like ah, just fucking. Um, but <laughs> uh, I remember uh going and uh like for the first time like putting on the wig for that uh for that and that was my trans moment. I swear to God, like I was just like okay, yeah, I'm. I was kind of. Thinking that it, you know, I was like, okay, yeah, I am trans. But then as soon as I put the wig on, there was so much gender euphoria from that. I was just like, oh my fuck, God, like, there's no going back. Like, there's no going back in the closet after this. But yeah, it was, that was, that shit was wild. Um, I had a, I had an awesome time uh, with that campaign. I loved that campaign. Fantastic. It was a wonderful, it was, it was wonderful to get to play with everybody, you know, and long-term campaigns kind of can die. And so the fact we got to do an extra season and like, it was yeah. just great. Yeah, I'm... You know, I was just on cloud nine to even like how it, it's it's like we're we were just discussing this like kind of off the air, but it's such it feels so good to be considered to be offered 
more, you know, or to be offered a spot doing anything really. And to be like renewed was such a great, wonderful feeling because we were the only show that Cobalt Press at the time had renewed. And uh, I was just like, oh, my God, like that was. And do you know what I learned from my B testing? What did you what did you learn? We averaged the same amount of viewers uh, regularly at shows in which I paid blue check marks, which tells me what? It tells me that my viewers care about who's on the screen, but they also care about the content. They also care yeah. about the community playing, not just VIPs playing, right? That yeah. they, that they see themselves in a certain way when it when because they don't have a blue check mark. It is actually the same mentality that goes behind reality television its success we know that tv and film are scripts actors right these are still people hope most of us do anyway so that's a whole other story um but there's something so refreshing about watching people like us people that we relate to we can see we're like oh that's that's just like me hey i have that same blanket on my bed kind of vibe yeah playing something that we love telling stories that we still connect with just as deep as we would a scripted show on television that is special definitely um i you know now that you mention it like shows that where you don't know any of the actors and like you're just kind of enjoying it for what it is rather than i know this is going to be good because this particular actor like you know ryan reynolds is always going to tell a ryan reynolds joke or whatever that you like right right (laughs) um but like yeah and probably part of the reason why people are so enamored with method actors is like you know that they're going to be different they're going to be a different regular person or fantastical person or whatever they may be um because they really don't embody themselves when they go into this work and they're representing a piece of humanity rather than like themselves that you can see in any of these shows that they've been in. Yeah. Yeah. I have my feels on method acting, but I think there is, there's something about this kind of entertainment form. And I'm going to say entertainment because I'm not talking about all of tabletop, right? Like what you and your friends do is not performative at at home. That, that is shared between y'all. That is still special, even maybe more special than what we see on Twitch and YouTube and those kinds of things. Because the heart of that is what has built this industry. Heart of that shared moment with all of your friends around a table is actually the magic behind this form of entertainment, like entertainment, which is so different than TV. It, It is a special, unique kind of storytelling and is successful in a variety of forms, whether you have these kind of um, famous people at a table playing together or whether it, it it feels like people you know, the people from your game store, the people that you used to hang out with co- in college and like r- roll dice with. That That is magic. Yeah. That is the same magic that other uh, storytelling platforms like theater have sought to figure out for. I'm going to tell you a story. I, um, I have this game that I've been playing since March. It was a Call of the Nether Deep campaign. We're on like session 29. They're only like halfway through the campaign book because they got distracted. Kenzie's in that game, actually. Kenzie plays with me twice a week still. I play with, I play in one of her games once a week. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, they, the, the group like had like a confrontation where all of them were most certainly going to die and they managed to, um, do something that forced my hand as a GM. I was like, okay, well, I was going to TPK you, but you did this wild thing that like is plausibly going to (laughs) work and the dice were in your favor. And um, so they all survived. They made a deal. They left this dangerous area. Um, Some of them won hit points. Some of them died and then revivified. Um, 
then post that there was like a romancing between like an NPC and one of the characters. And um, now that continues, which is its own thing, which is weird. And for me, I don't mean weird, like uh, perverted, but it was like, it was kind of strange to me to like be that deep into a game. Uh, and it's always strange and wonderful and fantastical whenever it happens, because like before you know it, after you've been playing together for so long, then it's just literally, it's like, it's magic, this connection yeah. that you feel with people. And it's what everybody is chasing when they play these games. And it is a professional game for me, but I told them like, and this is me not trying to be like manipulative or gaslight anybody like at the table. But I told them, I was like, I fucking love this game. I love this table. We've been playing together for like eight or nine months. And like, you all have like gone through some, we've gone through so much together that, you know, if I had the opportunity and I had like a million dollars, and it wasn't my job that I would run this game for free, obviously. <laughs> like, right. Well, yeah. but that's also th that's also something that's kind of cool. So unlike other forms of the entertainment industry where we are it is so driven by money, there is because of that magic a space where both the professional and the personal are allowed to exist. And that is also magical because usually one yeah. or the other is squashed out, right? You're in nonprofit arts. It's not about the money. It's all about the passion. But then how do you feed your staff, right? So you hustle for nothing, for pennies and dollars. For the people that are working the hardest to keep our society, like, collectively tied to humanity. Yeah. And you've got the other side of it, which is the creative end of big bucks like Hollywood and all of the Marvel movies and so forth and so mm -hmm. on. Which oftentimes is about the money making and some of the passion, sometimes all of it can be squashed in that process. And it's really cool to be able to say I have this thing that pays me and this thing I can be passionate about and neither one has to be sacrificed. Absolutely. And like that's the gosh, it's it's definitely the best uh, job I've ever had. I want to move full-time to game design but i mean like nobody in the industry is really full-time except for a few people right there's maybe like it is a small it is a small handful but the, it continues to grow right the hope yeah. is that we grow an in industry so that we can have more involvement and we can support the yeah. industry better and like i'm at the point like this past year not to gas myself up but like <laughs> i was a top three gm on start playing games all of 2022 where do i i don't have anywhere to go <laughs> like i'm at the ceiling like <laughs> Are you though, so, or is that, or is that like okay? So if you think if you think about a dungeon, okay, yeah, let's let's do it. You are not at your boss level yet. Uh, just well, when yeah. you think, and just when you think there is a ceiling, what's actually uh -huh. hiding is a trap door to the next level. <laughs> uh, I don't do many dungeon You'll, crawls, but yeah. Well, but even in a video game crawl, like yeah, that's yeah, the yeah, idea yeah. is that it's not done yet, right? Like, well, mm -hmm. what would they say on National Treasure? Like, it's another clue. It's just another clue. <laughs> it's just it's just your next step yeah. to to say, okay, I've reached here. And I don't want to squash this down. What it's actually done is built you a foundation. And that foundation will hold up the next dungeon level. Um, yeah. And so I, I look forward to you finding the trap door and you figuring out what's on the other yeah. side. You know, honestly, Dot, I mean, you're absolutely right. I said that kind of jokingly and you gave me some real world wisdom there. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it, it's weird for me for uh, honestly, I say that jokingly and 
I have confidence about what I do. And I know that the community that I built really reflects like the work that I put in this past year. At the at the end of it, it's like, do I continue doing this or do I pursue like what I'm really passionate about and like what opportunities am I building for myself? And for me being a full-time GM, a lot of it is my interest in like storytelling and like developing and staying relevant within the industry, developing those skills that I need to develop, whether it be writing or performance or whatever it might be. And then like maybe a little bit of a note to some opportunities and then like having some opportunities come to me where I'm just immensely excited about and I'm just like this is a fucking unbelievable opportunity that I am so excited about that I cannot say no to this and I will do whatever it takes to make it happen and opportunities come knocking but like you need to be working you need to be at work to answer the door and it's but that is that is the hustle right that's that freelancer lifestyle um and like I said I lived it for until I was Actually, I lived the freelancer lifestyle alongside a full-time job even to some degree yeah. up until a very certain point. And I'm, I'm dwindling out, out a lot of my freelance work. But one of the things I've tried to challenge myself with is asking myself why I kept so much freelance work because it's exhausting. It's so yeah. exhausting to hustle. What I realize is my freelance work lets me fulfill all the many things that I love, all the different interests, and to stretch myself, to challenge myself. Um, and so my freelance work doesn't look like self-producing to my Twitch channel anymore because that is now what I do full time. Um, mm-hmm. It looks like um, taking new writing contracts, submitting a spell to an open call, writing for friends projects like Vineyard Project, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and challenging myself to face something I've never done and say, okay, Dot, you've written 80 page, 180 page thesis papers, right? For academically speaking, you can knock out a creative thing and say, you have the creative juices. Obviously, you're, you're here. You've done this thing. Now write something. And I've always been terrified of writing. And this past year was my my time to break out and say maybe it's time to do some write, some freelance writing work. And so that has been my my challenge. And and so far, so good question. Yeah. I'm let me just say, I've said this to you before, but to everyone, Chelsea is the best person to work with on a writing project. <laughs> I love working with Chelsea. Really? Because I always yes. feel like, you know, I, I didn't come out of writing, so I don't know. And I've been I have felt in over my head in certain ways, not because of anything that you or anybody else has done. Just like, am I doing this right? There's a lot of my personal questioning that feels like drowning because you're like, Did I do this right. Should I have I've turned this in already? Or like, is this how I leave a comment that's not insulting to my editor? Like, you know, like you, you're just trying to like juggle new balls. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. uh, you are. And and you go, how do I do this one um, now? And And so much of it is learning. And it is hard to to fail or to question yourself or to say, God, I could have done that better. Um, But again, project managers or other narrative designers, um, I'm not the narrative designer on the vineyard. That's uh, M may have like a different opinion about like what they prefer their writers to act like. And maybe some of them just prefer like, I'm going to give you the assignment and then you turn it in at this date and then I'm never going to talk to you. And then we'll do feedback professionally and then that's it. But I really appreciate it. Maybe this is because we're friends, but um, I really appreciate it just like being a part of your process and then talking with you through mm. your process about what it is that you're writing because I'm I'm the co-creator. Like I initiated, I created like the basis for all of this. So for me to be a part of that process was such a joy. And I always love working with the people who are writing on the team to see what they create. I remember when I received received first drafts and I was fucking weeping because I was yes oh my god yes I was crying because I loved all of it I was like maybe we can't use all of it but like this is so fulfilling 
for me to like hand off something to another group of creatives and be like, hey, this is kind of what I'm thinking. Do what you want with it. And like people did just like you did and brought it back to me. And like, there's something very organic and um, just beautiful about mm-hmm. everything that has come in for the vineyard. And you've seen the other writing and like, it's so amazing. Like some of the shit that has been created for this book. And I'm so proud of it. I'm so excited. I think it's the best fucking book of the year. It's going to be the best <laughs> fucking book of the year. Yeah. I'm just so grateful to have this creative journey with you in the project as well because it's just it's just us being you know in a way in like a queer way like we're together again and we're working on something different you know um smoking mj in your ford focus at 3 a.m at gen con <laughs> but we're together again staring deeply into each other's Dude, eyes it's, complimenting. It's, it's true right here on this podcast in front of everybody <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, I already tell everybody anyway, Dot, but yeah, we did smoke marijuana in your Ford Focus at 3 a.m. at Gen Con. And, uh, that is stare, There's no stare deeply into each other's eyes while we held hands. We did hold um, hands. We did you know, hands. I think our society has such a, oh, and this comes from somebody who, again, is in therapy for like, you know, lack of physical contact and daddy issues and all of the, you know, the, the things that yeah. come along with live with life. And physical touch is one of those things as I've gotten older, I realize that I actually crave in certain ways. And there yeah. are so many kinds of physical touch. And our society has skewed our perspective on what positive, friendly physical touch is. There was a period in time where, where two best dude friends could walk down the street and hold hands and that was not considered homosexual or gay in any way right that was just that was a show of affection between two people who cared deeply for each other and i think that there is a such a lack of that now because touch has been so poisoned by the toxicities of our society um and i mean the worst of it to to the little things right um and i think um I think it is important that when you care about somebody and they need you, that you, if they are obviously consenting, that physical touch is a great way to offer solace because I believe energy, scientifically, everybody, energy cannot dissipate. Our bodies create energy constantly, right? All of these things are energy being created. I firmly believe that through touch, we can pass energy. It can only be passed or changed. So why can't, and that's the concept of magic, right? Real magics is that it's about willpower to change the world around you through energy. And so I believe that through a simple touch, just like that, sitting in my forerunner, right, you know, uh, getting stoned together, that you can affect positively another person through as something as simple as holding hands. Now, that's not the queerest shit you've ever heard. It, it is. It is. <laughs> and I experienced it. And literally holding hands with you was like one of my favorite memories. Yeah. One of my favorite memories. Holding hands the with you. Things, like, everybody. Always yeah. the little things. We're holding hands again. I swear we're fucking we're as long as you consent, of course. But like <laughs> I'll, we'll, we'll, we'll hold hands again. Don't don't you fret Friday. Okay. Wonderful. Because I love holding hands. Um <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so okay. Wow, we're way off track. Okay, so uh that's I told you, Friday was like, we should get some questions ready. I was like, why? <laughs> Uh, we do have to cover some stuff, but uh, I mean, like, that's what this podcast is. It's like, let's see where we go. Um, and let's talk about you being the marketing person for Cobalt Press. Uh, well, I'm the, that... the content production manager. Yes. 
sorry. I'm so sorry. I I, I technically am part of marketing. Right. No. I, that, yeah, I am technically part of marketing. You started as a marketing director at Dad's Garage. Correct. I did. Yes. So I've yeah, been yeah, in yeah. marketing for a while. Actually, that was my focus in grad school. So what difference does it make if you make a product if people don't know about it? <laughs> um, so I really wanted to dive deep into marketing. Um, people say marketing's the sexy side of business. That is incorrect. That is the <laughs> lie. There's nothing sexy about marketing. Um, wow. It's hard work. Uh, it's uh, sure, you know, mad men make it look sexy, but that's not really how the world works for uh, uh, advertising and marketing anymore because the fact of the matter is we have things like social media, which are the most unsexy things ever. Uh, our goal is to just make it look sexy for, you know, to you. Um, but yeah, so um, where did I get started? I mean, I've been, like I said, I've been doing marketing for a long time. I, I had been an operations manager for a pretty large nonprofit and um, I got real burned out. Remember I told you all that. And in my existential crisis, I decided to go to education and I became a vice principal for a while. Uh, <laughs> uh, that'll, that's a different story oh, for yeah. a different day. Oh, yeah. I forgot about <laughs> that. Oh, my God. You've told me that before. I remember we had yeah. this whole conversation about, oh, my God. Because I used to like work with school districts. And it was like, you a vice principal? I could see that. You have that dog yeah. mommy vibe of like. <laughs> oh, yeah. I did. I dealt with discipline and communications for, yes! for this, this private uh, oh. high school, middle school. Um, I, I, I What I learned is I'm not destined to work in education uh but i did it uh for a while with some you know with a school and while i was there and i was definitely ready to leave um on a whim i applied to my favorite improv and comedy house a job a marketing director job and decided maybe to go back to nonprofit. They were the largest comedy house here and um, really in the Southeast in terms of like income and all that kind of stuff. And I was enamored by the idea because they were probably one of the only nonprofits. I was like a comedy place. I need laughter in my life. And in fact, I needed laughter in my life a lot more than I thought. And working at dad's garage for as a, in the marketing director position came at this kind of perfect time in my life where I needed good people. I needed people that lived their life. Yes. And who uh, always assumed best intentions i needed to be there exactly when i was um and so i did i worked in this place and i had a lot of laughter in my life for about two years and then 2020 happened and as much of uh you know as you can run a theater when the doors are closed we tried to and um eventually i was scouted for some part-time work because i was everybody was home so i had the space to do it um and i was scouted for some part-time work with cobalt press and i started just kind of running the twitch channel got scouted again by another company and and their offer was kind, but not really what I wanted. What I really wanted was Cobalt Press uh, to keep me on board full time. And so mm -hmm. I went to them and I said, I have this other company and I don't really want it. I really want y'all to want me. And they did. And uh, it was the first yeah. time in my life where I had actually like negotiated not only like a promotion, but to stay. Like a company wanted me in a way where they negotiated with me a place to keep me. And I think that is another reason why I'm dedicated to Cobalt Press. I love that for you so much. Yeah, that's, it was it was so really cool. it was pretty amazing. So when people say Cobalt Press is good people, they are not they are not lying, everybody. And so uh, I got to take something that I thought was like, you know, I was like pinching pennies and taking bits and tips to pay people. And I got to take all of that that has been so passionate and wonderful for me uh, over the last few years and move it into a full-time position and kind of redefine what that looks like in terms of content management for Cobalt Press. And so it's gone much beyond Twitch production. Now it's including conventions and in-person productions and on-site location shoots and all kinds of different things. Um, and it's kind of rather, rather beautiful. And um, am I using all of my potential? No. Does any one person want to use all their potential? No, that's fucking exhausting. Um, and maybe one day I will. Uh, and I hope that Cobalt Press is there to like give me my next opportunity. Uh, but right now I, I am 
absolutely honored and um, humbled to be able to call myself part of a, a tabletop company and be doing something that is just so like like I said earlier that takes my profession um, my professional side and my personal side and merges them in a way where I can give it my all and it's kind of a yeah, it's kind of elevated my life in a certain way now that we've made it through you know all of this and come out the other side in 2023 everybody uh, I'm I'm very excited to be where I am and I'm I'm I, I owe that to so many people to my dot lot community that's built me up over the years to every channel that's ever given me a chance uh to the city of atlanta who funded a big grant to get shows done like every touch point of people that have contributed to this crazy concept of you know telling stories using games online um has really helped me get to this place and i am i'm eternally grateful i am too i i made it 40 minutes before we started crying dot <laughs> Hey, we did really good. 40 yeah. minutes is a long time. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I held out for a long time. Yeah. Oh, God. Okay. All right. All right. And around the same time, like that I met you, that you started for Cobalt Press part time, Pod by Night started, right? Tell me about that. Correct. Correct. Um, so Pod by Night, <laughs> Pod by Night uh, some of my best friends in the whole world, I have had the great joy of meeting because of tabletop games online and about the time that i was being bullied a lot uh, remember me telling online not not in my childhood online and i got bullied out of, of of the community where i started and i decided to launch my own twitch channel and stuff again serendipitously the universe the universe is always there to catch you um and it caught me and it caught me thanks to a tabletop channel called roll for it the roll for it network uh, and they were launching, this is when V5, the new V5 edition of Vampire the Masquerade was about to drop to the public right before that Gen Con. And they asked us to start a really short run of a Changeling show to build to a Vampire the Masquerade show. And that show impacted me so deeply in so many ways. It was my first time playing World of Darkness. Uh, and so we can talk about why I love World of Darkness maybe later. But that game is super personal and to me. Um, even though I'm new to it, it, I love it. And I met some of my best friends in the whole world. In the whole world. Uh, and I love them dearly. And we did two seasons of that show, which was quite a lot of content. It was about 84 episodes or so. Holy shit. Okay. Yeah, it was a lot. Like we did. And there were there were four hour episodes. Like, I mean, like we we churned out some content. And then wow. season three was not greenlit. Mm. And these kind of stories of, our char- of these characters that were both personal to us, personal to our friend group, needed an ending. And we weren't going to get it. And so my friends and I who were playing in the game came to the table, um, you know, away from the network. And we said, well, what do we do about this? And my be- one of my best friends, Mathis, uh, Mathis Games, he runs another podcast. And he said, let's just do a podcast. Like, let's just turn mics on and do a podcast. And I said, well, Mathis, I don't do half-assed projects. <laughs> and I said, so if we're going to do this, I want to make sure it's done right. And so I started putting a plan together and I said, let's play, started with let's play more vampire together with a group of friends. And then I said, I want to sure that if we're going to do a show can be boxed, doesn't make money. Right. And Matthews is like, it's going to make money. And I was like, I don't know. Um, so what I did was I said, instead of starting a giant network and starting at the top where I want to be, I started small. And I said, I need to raise enough money to get the cast that I want. And I knew I wanted Mark Muir on board, who's a good friend. Actually, it's funny. I met Mark Muir not through Tabletop, but at Dad's Garage. Okay. He, he, he is an improviser that used to come to Dad's Garage reg- regularly and is good friend was good friends with our artistic director, who is from Canada, where Mark is from. And uh-huh. So I actually met Mark at Dad's Garage before the tabletop thing happened. So I know Mark from for many years, and I knew I wanted Mark on board for this. And he had been wanting to do more vampire stuff. And so it was kind of magic in that. And so I, I made a budget. I figured out what I needed to produce exactly the amount of episodes we wanted. Because I knew when I put this podcast out, one, 
I didn't want our audience to pay for the first season. And at the time, it wasn't a first season. I didn't want people to have to pay for this podcast at all. I wanted it to be totally free to them. And I wanted it to be wrapped by the end of this. I think we did 16 episodes. uh, The 16 episodes, one hour, 45 minutes to an hour long episodes, where if we don't make any money and nobody listens to it, it's, it's a thing we put out to the world. But nobody is beholden to it. Nobody goes in the hole because of it. And we can look at that as the thing we as a group of friends wanted to make together. Yeah. So that is how I approached it. And season one was a huge flipping success. It was far more than we could have ever dreamed of. We're on our way to about half a million listens on our podcast right now. Um, now, we're many, many seasons in since then. But once the first season did well and people were asking for more, then I launched a Patreon. And yeah. I looked to the community to fund it. And I yeah. said, we did this. We did this for you to begin with. Now, if you want us to continue, we need you to help us do it. And so it was the business model that I chose. And so far, so good. Uh, we've produced um, two short mini podcasts in that time. We've produced, um, we're on season four of our main storyline, like of our main cast. And mm-hmm. I would say thanks to our success and thanks to our loving community for Pod by Night. We were able to go back to roll for it this past year and negotiate a contract to purchase the rights for an extended period of time to complete the third season of the show that wasn't supposed to happen that started this anyways. And so I'm very excited that we launched a Twitch channel and we decided since it was a four hour stream, we were going to stick with its original presentation. So we, we decided to start a Twitch channel so that we could host end of the beginning of where it all started for everybody. And it's been, mm-hmm. um, it's been a wild ride. It really has been. Um, yeah. So anyways, that's it's a little bit of a, of a friendship production to some degree. It's a group of friends who desperately just wanted to play together more. And it's a little bit of my love letter because I had helped start a podcast before and I definitely learned a lot from the process, even though I'm not part of that process anymore. And mm-hmm. I tried to take what I learned. But I've learned helping artists fundraise and creatives fundraise and everything over these years from even doing like, you know, Twitch streams live and say, how do I do this? Get the thing that I want. And that's that's what I did. Uh, and yeah. it's it's been it's it's my little it's my prized uh little favorite well it's the only podcast i've ever produced but it's fully uh but it's my little prized it's my little prized joy uh because it, it has so much love so much friendship and so much just great storytelling in it yeah i pod by night like what a fucking oh my gosh like what serendipitous obviously and then also what a fucking thing to like have as your only producer <laughs> for podcasts like what a thing to like have you know as your first go around it's like yeah just did this as my first you know sometimes i think of that about like me and like i been accepted for like some writing gigs before like many things in tabletop like sometimes you don't see it for like two or three years so technically i don't have anything on my resume right now <laughs> so it's like it's gonna be weird if like vineyard or win 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 vineyard goes gangbusters on kickstarter it's gonna feel weird because it's like that's my primary writing credit and it's just like i'm just this person in the basement that came out and it's like hey look at this ended corporation that would be great to play around and yeah but that's how so. crazy ideas happen right that was me and my friend they were like this fucking sucks we want to play more vampire together what do we do and mathis is like we turn on our microphones and we play more vampire together we can't use that story we can't use those characters which you know we're under contract to another channel but we want to play vampire together we'll just start something that we want and it was it was refreshing sometimes a reset button or like a refresh we as we all know is not a bad thing it can really make a huge difference uh and it and it did for us and it and what it actually did was it gave us a platform to do what we really wanted which was to tell the end of those character stories Exactly. Uh, which yeah. which is not where we necessarily started, but it is it is um at least for, 
in its foundational level, like where we started its genesis point, has gotten there. And it's kind of kind of cool. I sent you a message the other day. I was like, God, how many fucking shows are you still doing? Like, you must love these <laughs> shows because, like, you're just still doing them. And I guess, like, you know, take a look in the mirror for it. I ain't fucking running like. I was like, don't like... even. You're you're <laughs> running like five times as many games as me. So don't even come at me. Um, but yeah, I do I do a lot of stuff. But you know, honestly, in terms of what I used to do, like sometimes I'd have six, seven games in a week. Um, sometimes like two a day, depending on you know if I was making an appearance or doing a charity stream or somebody had asked me to come on. And so I, I've gone from doing like a whole lot to doing a lot less. But in, in my a lot less it's kind of been um quality over quantity right and i've really dug deep in kind of the stories that i want to tell the things that i want to do so outside of cobalt press of course things that i've chosen to stick with have always obviously been pod by night and honestly i've gone to my other friend group online right which is over with the unmade gaming network i love mike i love eris i love gnome and kp and paul in fact paul is half the reason that Pod by Night got off the ground because Paul's company invested in our first season. So it was a very, um, it was like a friend who went like, hey, one of the things we do is sometime invest in new projects and like, I can't cover it all, but I can get you started. And if anybody has ever done producing before, you know, it's a lot easier to get more money when people have already invested, right? It's the same, it's the same thing with Kickstarter. We're more yeah. likely to back if it's already funded. Yeah. And so because of that small move from one of my friends who again, took a chance on me, I was able to get that first season out and then kind of the rest was history. So, um, but I, I play a lot over on Unmade Gaming's channel and he, really Mike took a chance on me because uh, I was at that same Gen Con, the one where where I picked up the brand new VTM uh, book that had just hit market. Free League had just dropped Coriolis. Now, there are mm-hmm. very few game books that I have picked up in my lifetime that have actually moved me to tears to the point where I was like, if I don't play this, I will be incomplete as a person. Um, there have been two, and Coriolis was one of them. Picked it up, and I read kind of the intro of the history of where humanity is at that point, and holy moly, I was like, moved to tears on the convention floor at Gen Con, and I bought it on the spot i came back to mike and i said will you give me a chance to gm on your channel i want to run this i want you and these are the these are the people that i would like to work with now at the time i didn't know eris very well i knew eris a little and i knew gnome a little i knew mike a whole lot better and uh i had actually the same channel that got me started playing tabletop all those years ago that i'm not involved with anymore i met paul on a random drop in tabletop day and i gm'd his first D D game for him and he was wow. like you're the only gm i ever want and i was like well i encourage you to expand there are other great gms out there but i really appreciate that and we had actually gone over to um this is really early we had gone over to the gray hawk network and i ran a camp campaign called uh the birthright of the pomage which is a which was an all orc campaign set in greyhawk that was looking at like a giant war that had to do with these orc twins that were supposed to like lead them to victory so it was like a whole thing um and i wanted to give a new perspective on orcs in greyhawk and um asked Paul to be a part of that and that was his first stream show and so when I got to this I just knew I wanted Paul to be a part of Coriolis I just loved the way he played he was a good friend uh, and he had been so encouraging to me as a GM and here I was picking up a new system set in this very dense world um, of sci-fi and they all took a chance on me and let me run that and we ran it for the we started it at the top of 2020 and we've run it for almost three years because it was a touch point for my friends it was our story it was so very personal and I cut my my teeth in a big way in developing story as a GM, like over a long period of time. Like, how do you tell these epic stories? 
And because of that, um, and because I learned to love Free League's dice mechanics, uh, I picked up the next drop from them, which was the Alien RPG. And if you know anything about me, and I know Friday does, I'm a little bit of a stickler for horror. I love the horror genre. I love the way that fear and being pushed to the limits can, almost in a Brechtian way, inform us of who we are. And so I fell in love with the Alien RPG. And uh, as Coriolis was coming to a little bit of a close for one of the seasons, I said, Mike, I just want to run six episodes. Just a six episode. I have this idea of two timelines. They're going to crash in the middle. I want them to make two characters because Alien's deadly. I'm going to kill them all. It's going to be great. We got to the end of six episodes. And again, this was a hand select cast. Mike took a chance on me and let me bring some new people to the channel. And every one of them was absolutely perfect. And um, six episodes has turned into three seasons because they gave me also a chance. When they got done, they said, we can't stop playing. Like I had all, I had killed one of every one of their characters. And they're like, well, well, now that the timelines are up, like we all are down to one character. Can we run a campaign? And so I picked up where we left off and I pushed forward. And what they allowed me to do is take something that's very personally uh, personal to me, which is the Ridley Scott world. Like the world of the alien universe is so so important to me like there's just so many things that i love about it i'm such a nerd i've read the books i've read the comics i've seen the movies i have theories i the only thing on Reddit I ever post about is aliens. I don't even like Reddit. Um, okay, so obsessed. <laughs> I'm obsessed with it. And they took a chance on me and let me do a campaign that is basically my love letter to the Ridley Scott world. Uh, and it's turned into this really beautiful thing. And in fact, two days ago, closed out that storyline. Of course, we got to the end and they're like, can we please have character epilogues? So we're going to do a short character epilogue run in the summer. But here we are. So yeah, I run a lot of games, but as I've gotten deeper into this, what I tend to actually be most drawn to are less short-term things and more long-term stories um so my 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 uh you know reserve of shows public have have dwindled but not necessarily in their quality in any way i now spend a lot more time developing deeper uh bigger projects than i do these kind of short run things that i used to try to fund for my channel or for other channels so and you heard it here first uh reading really ridley scott will turn you into a uh redditor yeah you know, total cultist. Beware. <laughs> Beware the Ridley Scott. I'm serious, y'all. And, and you know, if you want to check it out, uh, you're, you're welcome to. Like I said, I did three seasons. It was called um, if you go over to Unmade Gaming's YouTube channel, he calls it the dot verse because uh, it's like it's my dot verse of of Ridley Scott's verse, uh, my story. And it is if you if you if you have seen the movies, it is my take on what David does after he gets his hands on the covenant the ship all the people in it and so it's kind of like it fills in some gaps and uh, i use the books the tabletop books to and and history uh as we know it in the comics and stuff to just like weave kind of a a, a crazy and theory uh of what really happens and um yeah, you can go check that out. And then if you want to check out Coriolis, that is called Void. That show is called Void. It is all done, but it is a beautiful um, story of, of, of five five friends um, who basically save, save the third horizon. So check it out. There you go. There's a little I, – I, I pumped up some things for all of you. That's actually one of the reasons why I asked you to come on the Vineyard Project was because I had no idea that you were, like, just branching off into writing. I just assumed that you wrote – I couldn't find a bibliography for you or like project or portfolio or anything. Come to find out you hadn't. But like your ability to tell horror stories and participate in that and really understand horror is why I picked you. Just like some of these other people that I picked to be writers on the team, I picked them because I understood what they knew and I was not looking at their portfolio. And you were one of those people. So I just have to say it was very validating for me when news of you being a world builder for Fallout Winter of Adam 
came to light like that it was announced. I see, I see uh, what you did there, Friday, that transition. I see what you did. You know, I might have done this 20 <laughs> times so far in this podcast. Uh, it's true. Uh, it's funny, actually. That project came about in my lap, which, you know, like I said, I'm very, very proud. Uh, there are very few things in my life I can be like, look at this, mom. Like, stick this on the refrigerator. Uh, and this project, I have to say, is probably one of them. Um, that project came to me at the top of 2020 before everything, like our entire society shifted. <laughs> um, and it was supposed to be a really quick project. And that is not what it turned out to be at all. In fact, I've been sitting on that secret that I've been working on it for almost two years. Um, but <laughs> it's funny. One of my friends from earliest days of when I joined the Twitch RPG scene six, seven years ago, uh, the same channel that um, I started on, they launched a Kickstarter for um, it, uh, a small setting. Uh, that was actually based on a very successful podcast they did called The Blood Plague. And uh, my friend Don, who was a GM on the channel, he's a fantastic GM. Another, uh, you can actually hire Don too. Um, he's a fantastic GM, but uh, was heading up the writing on this project. And at one of the backer tiers, you could submit an NPC to the book. And I love that idea. I had, because I was a fan of their podcast. I loved the setting. I loved everything about it. And I had an idea for an NPC. So I, I saved up my money and I backed at one of these higher tiers for their project and got to submit an NPC. Well, I was one of the only people that backed at that tier so when the writing really got going and uh dawn started writing i was like hey am i gonna get to submit this npc and they were like oh yeah 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 just turn in like 500 words so i wrote these 500 words about this npc turned it into dawn and he fell in love with just the 500 words of this npc so much that he turned it into a major npc for the game and finding her this npc was is a major aspect of of the storyline uh the location what's going on in the forest a whole bunch of stuff and he was just so moved. Now, this was seven years ago, everybody. Five years after that, Don and I have been friends. We see each other at cons. But, you know, our paths have not really crossed in a professional way in quite a while. I get a random message at the top of 2020 from Don that says, I am working on a project. I would like to sign an NDA so I can talk to you about You need to sign an NDA so I can talk to you about it. But I want to talk to you about this. I'm like, all right. Uh, so I sign an NDA. Has Modifius at the top. So then I start fucking freaking out. Like heart palpitations on the Zoom call with Don. <laughs> To tell me that he would like to bring me on as world designer for the new Fallout RPG book. Um, and I say new in that they have a book out. The It's the D20 system. Um, it's pretty heavily minis based. And what they really wanted to do was to create an, a role play version of the D20 system. So um, it will not only be like a setting book, a, uh, a, a campaign guide, like it has a campaign in it, but it is also new structured rules for core RPG 20 fallout book i was like i was blown away and of course in my stuttering i couldn't say no and he said i just want you to know i made this choice for two reasons because full circle here you love horror and i need somebody that has that edge he's like you're the only person i can imagine to write the cheeky sidebars in the vault tech voice and three i loved he's like your npc that you wrote all those years ago has stuck with me and i believe you have the capability of doing this have you ever wow. written this many words before i was like only for research papers you know uh <laughs> 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 yes okay and so i did i signed this nda and a project that was supposed to take six months turned out to be two years and i am a fan of fallout almost as much of a fan <laughs> as i am of uh you know, uh, as I am of a fan of Ridley Scott. But the fact of the matter is I got to work on a project that I am so deeply proud of. Uh, what I wrote, I'm so deeply proud of. And I am eternally grateful that both Modifius and Bethesda had very few things 
to change in terms of my writing. They they took a lot of it. And one of the settlements that I originally wrote as part of world design, which was just supposed to be like a settlement you can drop into, ended up becoming a location, much like my original NPC, the main campaign and got written into the main campaign storyline. So it actually blew up bigger, which is kind of, you know, one of the reasons the project uh, got shifted around a little bit. And so timelines were extended. But um, I'm pretty humbled by the whole process. And I, I'm, I'm very excited for the world to see it. So y'all be kind, okay? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wow. Um, I just want to point out like that whole story arc, that whole saga started because you wrote basically um, fan fiction uh, into yeah. a Kickstarter. <laughs> that was based on a podcast I love. That's exactly uh, how it happened. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Stop, don't stop writing fan fiction, I guess. <laughs> Yeah. And that's, that's how, honestly, that's how a lot of writers get started. And, um, you know, that's how a lot of kids get started. Like when they, cause they yeah. write, I remember writing like fan fiction about like, you know, what do you my think live journal was for? Exactly. Yeah we, are, yeah. we are the generation of live journal. What do you think it was for? It was for all of us to have an outlet for writing because we didn't have a way to share writing anymore. Uh, it was like yeah. huge live journal was fudging huge for that. And my live journal, which you will never find is out there somewhere <laughs> and, and still has all of my fanfic writing on it. The things that I wrote about neo and trinity uh in the 2000s will make your mama blush you know what i mean yeah i yeah um that's yeah i yeah i started writing in like i think it was six sixth grade yeah i started writing in sixth grade and it was like battletech fan fiction like it was just like i'm gonna create this story and i wrote like two pages of fan fiction and i showed my brother right. and he's like that's dumb and i was just like oh Oh. <laughs> uh and then i started to like read wheel of time and then i started to write like weird conglomeration of like wheel of time and suicoden 2 which i was playing at the time like when i was in like fucking seventh grade and i turned that in as like a short story assignment got accused of plagiarism because i had an f in the class because i didn't, didn't pay attention and i was reading you know, books funny, in class. i got accused of plagiarism too but not because i plagiarized because i had a crush on a boy in high school and he needed me to write his young author or, or his, like poetry entry which didn't yeah. have to win he's like i just need to get an a like i need to get the grade and i was like cool fuck it i wrote like 12 lines of this poem and turned it in he fudging won so then Ooh. somebody somebody knew because they watched me write it and then when he got the day he went to go receive the award they they brought us both to the principal's office the only time in my life i've ever been brought to the principal i was it was my oh senior my year of high school uh, and they accused me and him of plagiarism because i wrote it and he published it wow damn oh young love damn you you put everything on the line <laughs> Yeah, my that's perfect, a, my perfect record spoiled. Yeah. <laughs> Did you have a perfect attendance record too? Were you that bitch? <laughs> Y'all have to understand, like, you go over in a place like I do, you have a few ways out. You either have the money to get out, you have the hustle to get out. And I was the hustle mentality. Now, don't get me wrong. I was a fucking hellion. But I worked really hard to make perfect grades, attend everything, be the perfect child. So if any adult was like, look at this heathen sneaking out of the house, I'd be like, I got A's. Captain of the soccer team. I march in the band. I was a cheerleader. I do drama. I have scholarships. Like, what are you going to do to me? I've got good SAT scores. Like, what? Am I actually the problem? Like, fucking let me sneak out of my house and go drink vodka at a playground at 1230. Fuck you. Um, and I did. And that, uh, you know, I had a wild side. But to balance out that wild side, I was like, I have to be perfect. Right? This other. And now we all know how unhealthy that balance clearly is. And this is why yeah. I'm in therapy. But, but uh, uh, the, the fact of the matter is I had to be perfect to be able to get out and get what I wanted. So I thought, so I thought. But, you know, here I am, I made it. And now I found the perfect balance between what I need in terms of my perfectionism and and, uh, my free free little Janis Joplin spirit. (laughs) Yeah. Let's talk about 
what it is that you do in your evolution of like working for Kerbal Press because we've kind of brushed up against that. But oh. if we talk about anything last. Let's talk about and then, of course, you know, whatever you want to talk about at the end. But let's talk about your job at Kerbal Press, what it was, what it's become. What's your normal day to day look like uh, in this position? Um, this position seems like it would be something that other publishers will probably end up uh, developing over time. Yeah. So mm, this is tough, right? Because as with any business, industry changes. And where I started, part of the evolution of my job is simply because the industry is not where it was. It's funny, actually, Cobalt Press was a tad behind on getting their Twitch started. They had hired an outside company and things didn't quite work out. But uh, the movement of actual plays coming out of like hyper RPG early on, encounter role play, which is not around anymore, and these kind of things were really driven on this idea of the a la carte system of supporting. You buy a thing, you give X player a D20. You do the da, da, da. And there was a lot of success in that early on because the gamification of entertainment is a huge part of Twitch's model. Uh, and it worked and it worked great. And then companies started going, well, we can do that. But the fact that the, the big thing that they missed, which is built off of an influencer model. We listen to the person, not the company, which is why companies like Coca-Cola put ads, put their product in the hand of a Twitch streamer because it's an influencer platform. And so we saw this growth of all of these tabletop companies launching their own Twitch channel. And some of them have been successful, but the fact of the matter is they don't really make money. The reason is because the exchange there of coming to see the company talk about how great their product is is not the same as an influencer saying, I'm drink I am playing this tabletop. You should buy it too. And that is one of the major shifts I learned. So when I came in, we were still desperately trying to build up from the same mentality. Build a community, do a Twitch channel, make it a full-time thing. But really, full-time Twitch channels, other if you're not just an individual, are difficult to maintain. And if we've seen anything of all of the mini Twitch tabletop networks that have shut down over the years, we've learned that that is actually at the core of the problem. It's that there's not really a business structure for that. And so it, you either end up with a lot of volunteer people and people, people working for free. The actual money it takes to maintain a channel like that to really make money, to really have the impact is um, for a company. Again, I'm talking about a company, not an individual. So one of the big shifts I started out was like, let's do the Twitch channel. So I did I did the pattern, right? I laid it out exactly as it's supposed to be, and it wasn't successful. Not in the term not in the ways we were looking for. And I said, Okay, time to go to B testing. Did a round of B testing, did a round of C testing. And the fact of the matter is the industry has just shifted. YouTube is more popular again than ever for a variety of reasons. Um, they have kind of picked up on both the live streaming, premiere options, now shorts, which is because of Instagram. And the industry was always between Twitch and Twitter. Now there's an entire TikTok scene of tabletop, not at all connected to Twitter or Twitch. Now, there is some crossover, but not necessarily. And so now you have a whole new industry that is there. And so when I started out as the Twitch manager part-time and then got moved to the content production manager, what that really meant was that we, one outlet of content is not enough. It's not it's not enough of a platform to, to count in our marketing strategy because marketing is a big umbrella that also includes social media, community management, right? And so I was just one of those pieces hanging from the larger marketing umbrella. And I said, okay, well, let's talk about why that is. And so when we started looking at marketing strategy kind of have to hit things in a certain way and what we were beginning to note is there are different needs for different content which actually meant that the concept of content was no longer just actual plays to twitch 
was TikTok videos, uh, YouTube-specific content, you know, interview shows. This, and so that kind of expanded, and so my job in turn also expanded. Uh, this also included, like, uh, something I hadn't really considered, which are actual plays at conventions. Those get streamed, those get recorded, that falls under our content because it loops back around to be used again under the content arm. And so this job just really expanded. Yeah, and, you know, again, am, am, I, am, I, am I using every aspect of every uh, bit of marketing that I know? No, but I am part of a marketing team. And that still benefits us because when I come and say, okay, here's the content I've made, going to social media, going to blog, going to this, here I'm going to my convention and sales manager going, here's what I need for conventions. Uh, it touches every aspect of marketing regardless because the content tends to be what is actually needed by the other branches of the marketing. And so it's at kind of this core piece of a marketing strategy for at least Cobalt Press at this point. And so – yeah, part of that was listening, part of that was testing, part of that was realizing that the industry has changed and uh, there is a saturated market of actual play tabletops. So why would I try to compete with individuals who are doing a great job on Twitch? Why would I not just take the same amount of money and just give it the, to them to go influence or model, talk about my product? And so I actually stepped back from saying our company needs a Twitch channel. What we really need is to take the same money and give it to people that are actually fitting the business model of Twitch as the individual Twitch streamer doing those things. So I don't know. There's a little bit behind the scenes of like how it grew, how it changed, why it is the way it is now. Does that give you a day to day for me? No, but it tells you a lot of things that I have my claws, my cobalt claws in if you, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, um, yeah, it was, I guess it's a little wild. Um, the model that you're talking about and part of the goals was that first was that first uh, campaign run, and now you've gone on how many campaigns or different shows now, we, have you put together? A, a yeah, I was about to say we had a few campaigns that I ran before uh, Empire of the Ghouls, but when we got to B testing mode, if you would, that was yeah. one of the first ones. And we've probably run on Cobalt's channel twelve or thirteen campaigns, some of them short, some of them long. But one of my big goals with that, right? Because again, I'm coming into a company. Cobalt Press's Twitch channel is not my Twitch channel, Cobalt Press's channel. So I have to go. Okay, I want to know who Cobalt Press is. I want to see their mm -hmm. products and use i want to so i developed our content for our twitch channel based around that and i said okay we've got two major major adventures with the third one if you count city of cats my goal is to have every one of those adventures those campaigns archived because there's a whole section of gms myself included get ideas from watching other gms run that campaign people can go see how mckenzie decided to use empire of the ghouls without the racism without the sexism right and say here here's a take on it the same thing with the margrave the same thing with city of cats which we did in the southlands which turned into a much bigger campaign of all of the southlands and so i wanted to take our products our most popular products how can i archive them because that is what youtube is great for yes you can get those big hits yes you can make money but if we're if i am now come out of the mentality that we're not going to make money on our youtube and twitch channel what is it good for then absolutely nothing <laughs> no i'm just kidding uh, it's 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 great for archiving it's great for people being able to find us for back searching for linking to google for upping our analytics across all uh like the internet in total our website our like i said our google searches so i started looking yeah. at youtube as an ar an archive platform so now people can find scarlet citadel now people mm -hmm. can find this empire of the ghouls and so now all of our big stuff so the next time something big drops actually it did um my c testing was to see if an in-studio on-site actual play will actually sell more if, if we if we came out of zoom boxes and we went to the dimension 20 critical role popular hyper rpg model would it make a difference sure it'd cost a lot more money so i won't tell you if we considered that investment successful or not um 
But what I can tell you is that it gave us a chance to work with an outside company. So I was like, what if we go to another network, support this big project, go on site? And so I used Tales from the Wasted West. So now that product also is archived to our YouTube. So what I, how I am now looking at actual plays is hit a specific product so that the general public, no matter when they come in contact with that product, whether they're searching for it, they want to buy it, they're unsure, they want to know who Cobalt Press is, all of our products are represented in some way, shape, or form. Where I started, yeah, where I started doing actual plays and now the purpose behind our actual place is different, all based on a little bit of, you know, a couple years worth of research, testing stuff, looking at successes, and then implementing that in a way that's going to benefit us over a long period of time in a sustainable way, right? Because dumping money constantly every six weeks into a brand new show is not sustainable for Cobalt Press. But purposeful choices to make long-term content for an archive platform like YouTube is sustainable. Absolutely. Um, it's It's similar. It's funny how it you know, sometimes there's fundamentals about business that work the same way that it does for like a um, a company like Cobalt Press and even like being an entrepreneur. And one of the main things that I tell people is like, when you try stuff out, you need to be intentional. You can't just try shit out and like throw money at something and like not figure out anything or not learn anything. You need to really know what you're going to learn and not learn and then pivot based on that. Because if you just, you're just trying shit, like you're just, you're just paddling in a circle. You need to yeah, be able and, to. And, and, and literally washing money down the drain. Like you have to, yeah. and, 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 and there is a risk involved with any kind of investment, right? Because you could lose that money. So all the money that I raised for the first season of Pod by Night could have been, I wouldn't call it a failure, but that could have been it. Mm-hmm. That could have been it. And that money, it was invested. It's done. It doesn't make me any more money. It just is. I've created the thing. Yeah. And we have to recognize that that can happen too. Like, be prepared. Your investment may not go anywhere. That is the risk of investment. What do you do? Do you just keep, you go with the insanity model, which says you keep doing the same thing over and over with the same results? Or do you try to take take it as it is, not a failure, maybe a learning opportunity? Um, now you know how not to do it. Do it differently. And try something new to get a different outcome because that outcome could be successful. And now you've got your model. I remember when I wanted to do Coriolis on Unmade Gaming. Mike was in an interesting place with the growth of his channel. It wasn't quite making enough money to pay people. Not substantially anyways. Not what really what people deserved, right? And he said, I want to change this. And this was at a time where another channel had kind of fallen into the pit of volunteer-based community channel owner was making all of the money and um it didn't end well for them yeah it never after does. a while it never does and it so does. there was just a lot of misinformation miscommunication i blame no one person for it but the fact of the matter was it didn't work that business model didn't work for your community for you and for the longevity of so mike said i don't want to fall into this how do i fix it and i said well let's start talking what are you doing well people can make donations for this or they can give here and i get a couple subscriptions here and i said okay good business the very first thing you learn when you go to start a business is that you cannot have one source of income you have have to diversify your income streams. Now, Twitch makes this possible in a variety of ways. You've got subs, you've got bits, you've got donations. If you actually look at it, Twitch is actually just one. It has various ways to fulfill that income stream. So just because you're using all the variety of Twitch doesn't mean that you have diversified enough to keep making money. So if that's the case and you need multiple income streams and Twitch is only one of them, what else are you doing? You have a Patreon. You have a Start Playing Games account. Do you um, Are you making money off Discord because you're in a giant community and you're getting all of those boosts? How are you diversifying? And sometimes that diversification of money can look like investment. 
like it did for my pod by night. Not a single bit of pod by night was done through crowdfunding. I got it from one person over here and then I got, um, you know, another uh, private investment for another person here. And that was how I wanted to start that podcast. And then when it grew, branched out and I said, we can still take individual donations, but I need sponsors. I need this. I need Patreon. And we diversified our dollar income. I don't know where I was going that. What was I talking about? We were talking about, um, I feel like I missed the full circle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's fine. Um, (laughs) <laughs> we we kind of went down a windy river there. Uh, we started talking about that because we were chatting about how my strategies for making sure that you're doing things intentionally oh. um, is really what you need to do when you're yes. running a business. So to come full circle with Unmade Gaming. So when Mike came to me about this and he was like, what do I do? And I said, well, let's talk about how you're raising money. What is your messaging? Right. We went through all the marketing stuff and I said, I want to try something. This is how I was funding on my channel. Everybody was doing the a la carte method. $25, $10, you get a thing, you get a thing, you get a thing. Or if you donate at this level on, you know, you're my Patreon, you get this many D20s to pass out throughout the month. This very kind of track-based and gamified system. And I said, I don't want to do that. What I loved about my community is we are a community. So if we want to reach a goal, we should be reaching it together. This is not McDonald's. You don't give me $10 and I give you a hamburger. I didn't want that. One, because it took a lot of ownership from the players and the GM. To make me draw from a deck of many things means chaos. And people love the chaos. And I like that. I like the shakeup of the game, but I need to be in, I need to still be able to have my say. My players still need to have consent. And so I was like, okay, what do we do? What do we do? And I said, oh, duh, we go the fundraising method. Every time we collectively reach a goal of $100, all that $100 is split evenly among the cast. And I get a point, a tick, a hash, whatever you want to call it, that I get to bank to, to bring and, and I, I used to change it per show. So like when it was uh, Witch Girl Adventures, which is like high school witches dealing with drama, we called it the drama bar. And so every time the drama bar would fill, I'd bring drama. Maybe it was an ex-girlfriend. Maybe it's, you know, uh, the mean girl who picks on you. Maybe your wand breaks. But I would make drama happen. And the audience would stick around because they actually liked that they didn't know what I was going to do. So not only were we fulfilling a bar together, which made everybody feel like they were part of something bigger. We were all working towards the same ends, which is tabletop, right? It's storytelling. People stuck around to the end because they I wouldn't tell them how I used the drama bar till the end of the show. And so I did it a variety of ways. And so when we got to Coriolis, I said, Mike, since I'm going to GM this one, just for this show, you don't have to do it all across your channel. But for this one, I would like to start something called the Corruption Bar. And every time the Corruption Bar fills... I want to I want to make something like happen, right? Um, actually, I think we called it the darkness bar because we were in space. That's what it was. And the theme of Coriolis is the void, the, the darkness in space will consume you, right? So it was all about darkness. And I was like, that's what we called it. Yeah, we called it the darkness bar. And then because of the world, because of the setting, I would, the darkness would creep in. And maybe that means it corrupts something. Maybe that means your lights go out, whatever it was. Same, same exact principle around the darkness bar as it was around the drama bar and so forth and the corruption bars. Um, Mike, make more, Mike made more money on the first season of Coriolis than he had ever made on a show in his history, which means that it worked. And he instilled that fundraising method per show to get his cast paid, to get everything handled. And what it started to do was it, it actually ensured more people joined the Patreon because now you weren't nickel and diming them every week. They might donate one week to the corruption bar because we're all building towards it. So they might get five, 10, 20, till we all get to the $50 mark, right? And then they still felt like they had it 
to go to the Patreon because the Patreon wasn't part of what we were doing live. It was extra. And so what mm-hmm. Mike ended up being able to do by simply shifting the way in which he raised money to pay his players was create a more sustainable business option across all of his funding streams. Now he uses it across all of his shows. It's created sustainability and it has built a larger community, right? Uh, more Patreon base, Saturday gaming, and that corruption bar is now something that everybody knows to be a part of that channel. You know if you show up, you can donate to this bar and the GM's going to do something crazy with it. And if I stick around to the end, I'll get to find out what my money was used for. So it's, um, I say all of that because change is important. Variety of your income streams is important and change is important. You have to constantly be checking the temperature of an industry. If there is a, what we call, um, th- th- there's a great book called, um, marketing book called The Blue the blue Ocean. Is that what it's called? The Blue Ocean yep. Effect? Blue Ocean Strategy. Hey, strategy. That's it. The Blue Ocean Strategy. I've read it so mm-hmm. many. Um, and it basically says where there is saturation, go where it is not. You have to go, with, right? So when I started my Twitch channel, started doing tabletop, I said, no D&D. Every channel that is out there runs d and I want to learn new tabletop games and I want to show everybody. And so I picked tabletop games nobody had ever heard of, like Witch Girl Adventures. And I ran two seasons of Witch Girl Adventures, which both boosted their sales because now people got to see it and boosted me because people want to see it. I I made a partnership with Evil Hat Games, which at the time, Fate was not a well-played game. It still isn't, not in the grand scheme of things. But this is before they had their big success with Thirsty Sword lesbians and at the time they were doing a kickstarter for the new um they had just dropped scum and villainy and they were doing a new kickstarter for uh, uh fate of cthulhu i loved fate i had ran two custom fate games that was another thing use your channel to do what you want because people will show so i was like i don't want to run fantasy i don't want to run D. so my first outside D thing that i did was uh which one did I do? I did Fate of the Anchorman because I love the Anchorman movies. So I ran a game set in the world of Anchorman using Fate, set in the 1970s, just like the movies. But we were in Philadelphia instead of San Diego. And um, it followed all the people who worked on the new set. So the teleprompter guy, the wardrobist, the mic boom dude, and the weatherman. Because the weatherman got left behind. All of the news anchors were captured. And the point of the game was that they had to get the news anchors back before the 6 o'clock news. They had to solve the puzzle of who kidnapped <laughs> them. And the weatherman was so upset because he didn't get kidnapped with them. He went along for the journey. So yeah. it was this like whole beautiful thing set in this world that I loved. We used fate to do it. And it was something I wanted to do. And it was wonderful. It was so much fun. And I turned around and said, well, if I can do that, I can do another thing. And I, and my donations came in people got paid did the next one it was called fate of the appliance wars and it was basically brave little toaster <laughs> it was in a post-apocalyptic world where the nuclear explosion killed all humans and like altered the makeup of inanimate objects to be alive we had um there was what was it there was an old boombox who was looking for his lost love cassette right his love his love song cassette and there was like it was just such so heartwarming and i really found this way on my channel of telling stories don't get told from perspectives that don't get told and that came from looking at a saturated market and it said everybody's playing D. and what i found was there was an audience of people that didn't want to watch D. they yeah. wanted to see fate being played for the first time they loved anchorman they loved the brave little toaster you know i remember the moment where uh the teddy ruxin ruxpin if anybody remembers those those were the talking bears of the of the 90s and you put the little cassette in their belly he was the evil toy lord and he, they had to pass through this junkyard of evil toys and like I remember these things because my audience remembered them and it spoke to them. And so part of that change comes from recognizing where there is saturation and where sometimes you have to step out of the saturation. It's easy to fall into the, but this is what's hip and cool. It's like, yes, but some, now you're splitting audience. 
What I wanted yeah. was also the audience that didn't want to watch D&D. I found them. They became a core part of my community, which allowed me to continue. And from that point forward, I did not run D&D. I have never run a D&D campaign or long-term game on my channel. I'll do them sometimes for Sunday fun days or like if I want to show off something Cobalt Press, I might do a 5e. Like the fact of the matter is I said, here's the saturation point. If I'm going to go through all this trouble and I'm going to do this thing I want to do, I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. And in the genuineness and the honesty of that, I also stepped out of saturation point. You know, I can drop all of these these bombs on you about like business knowledge and here's how best to do something. Here's strategy versus your goals versus, you know, measuring things and data and blah, blah, blah. I can I can business, business, business all I want. But what I can tell you is that, and, and this is the hard truth, it is not easy. Remember in undergrad, uh, sitting in one of my very first performing arts classes with one of the most impactful people and professors uh, to this day. His name was Lawrence Ballard. He's a brilliant actor, also a very jaded old man. So we were sitting in scene study class and he, uh, he introduced me to both a book and a documentary that changed my life forever. But he also one day we came in, we were doing scene study on Waiting for Godot. And the thing about art school is there's a lot of ego because egos have a lot of artists. They have to, or artists have a lot of ego. They have to, um, to some degree. And they do. And you get a room full of actors and there's just like, it's a lot for one space. And so he said, all right, everybody sit down. And he went around and he's like, he, he, he kind of duck, duck goose around the room. And he only touched like every four or five people on the head. And he's like, okay, the lot of you stand up. He's like, in this room, this is a statistical perspective of who will actually make it in this industry. The rest of you will be, never be professional actors paid to act. And it was this really eye-opening thing that's like, wow, four out of 25 actors are going to make it to be paid. Not famous, not A-lister, to be paid to do their job. And we get paid pennies honored to have made money acting at some point in my life and now I get to say I make money being a storyteller I'm not just an actor in storytelling I get to write I get to perform I get to do all these things but I say all of that because it is hard to break into an entertainment industry you're going to be faced with a lot of stuff and the real pill to have to swallow is do I start something new that is already out there and make more competition muddy the waters break apart the audience in certain ways and try to scrounge for a niche of a niche of a niche of a pool of an audience do I try to do do I take the investment risk and do my own thing and in this case sometimes it's actually easier to go do your own thing even though it's going to look harder at the start so where you're talking about Friday you feel like you've hit a ceiling way back when when you started on start playing games you hit an unsaturated market in a way in which you rose to the top you took a chance you you took a liberty you you quit your job you did this thing you said I'm going to do it and you did it because you did something nobody else was doing and you did it your way not the way they told you to you're on the cusp of being there again and I imagine many people hopefully listening to this podcast are if your stuff is not working it is not a failure it just means you need a little change so swallow the pill of change do something you want to do something you're passionate about and take a bit of a risk and if you fell on the risk hey guess what I'm still going to give you a high five because you took a risk and more than likely you'll find a lot more success in risk than you're ever going to find in hitting status quo that's fucking beautiful dot and yeah and I think we're going to end the podcast (laughs) yeah I didn't mean to make you emotional I'm sorry no that's that's fine I um I love this experience with you um yeah, I and absolutely yes. Uh, a lot like of I broke people, Friday, everybody. There's <laughs> there's a there's so much going on with, um, and you're not allowed to say anything, so you don't have to. Um, but there's a lot going on with OGL and stuff, and we're recording this in January, and a lot I can of say people say some are, things. I'm I'm still a per. Your your mic cut you off because you're not allowed to say stuff. <laughs> So I can say some things as a person, not a company. Um, you know, everybody has their opinions. So um, since there has been business, I've always faced 
change, new things. When we got the first touchscreen iPod, don't you think that every MP3 producer out there, maker of those items, what did they do? They learned, they adapted, and now everything's made with a touchscreen. This is just another phase in our business. And I hate to call it business because that feels like it takes that that passion, that beauty that we've been talking about out of it, but it doesn't. It is still a business, right? We still have publishers and um, it is it is somewhat of a business, but it's also a hobby. That's the personal side of it, right? And it walks a fine line. And I think what we've seen over the last few weeks is what happens when you take something that has the perfect balance, business and hobby, professional and personal, and you try to make it all business or you try to make it all professional. What's really beautiful, it's like every other business, every other community, every other hobby rose up in a way, showed that this doesn't work for us. And no matter what the outcome, the final outcome will be, some really beautiful new things have stepped out of the saturation point and into a new place. We cannot control the actions of others, cannot control what that company chooses to do with that license. All we can control is what we do. So what are we going to do? What are you going to do? It's funny. It's almost like we were chained in a way and didn't know it. Stockholm Syndrome. Thank you so much for letting us be chained to this one brand forever and ever and ever. What actually happened was we realized we were chained. We said, wait, I don't have to wear this. In fact, I don't have to be chained at all. Sometimes it's hard to see past the, the news, the trauma, hurt, and the pain of change like this. I believe that something great will be made of it because it always is. We will endure. The industry may change, but change is not bad, everybody. Sometimes change is really, really important. Uh, you know, in the face of everything that's going on, remember that we are not going anywhere. You are not chained to that. And your hobby is not reliant. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for asking me, Friday. This was cool. Today's actually my day off, so I got up this morning and I'm here in my pajamas with Friday. Like, business is kind of Chelsea looks so fucking hot right now. Oh my god! Yeah, I do in my oversized hoodie and my beanie, and like I definitely no. Don't, don't tell them that, Chelsea. Own. You're wearing a bikini. <laughs> yes, everybody. Uh, I'm 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 stepping out of the saturated market of hoodies into podcasting and bikinis. <laughs> it's a market. All right, so. Thanks so much for listening to the Dollars and Dragons podcast. If you'd like to support me, and more importantly, my editor who does all of the heavy lifting here, then you can subscribe to patreon.com slash isfriday. And that is going to go straight to my editor. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Bye.